It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We agonize over every curve over every detail, every corner, every element of the interior, the exterior, uh, including things that people probably won't even notice. That was Elon Musk five years ago, presenting the first batch of Tesla electric compact cars at the company's factory in Fremont, California. These days, you'll find Musk elsewhere in the state, agonizing over every detail of his new acquisition, Twitter. So it's a bit of unfortunate timing for Musk that he had to take the stand to defend his unprecedented $55 billion Tesla pay package at a Delaware trial this week, where a Tesla shareholder is challenging the package as too excessive for a part-time CEO. My guest is an expert in corporate law, Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. Eric, there seem to be a lot of questions being addressed at the trial. Was the payout excessive? Did the board act appropriately, independently of Musk? Is he worth the money? What are the questions that the judge has to answer to come to her decision? Well, I think there are two major questions, and there's a little bit of a rabbit hole about how Delaware law works. But the two things that are going to be really important to understand is what was the context by which the shareholders of Tesla approved this compensation package, because it turns out that getting a shareholder vote, as long as it's a fully informed vote to approve a pay package, does a lot. It buys you a lot of real estate if you're trying to defend that pay package, but it's got to be kind of a by-the-book vote. A secondarily important issue is to what extent was the anticipated size of this compensation package within the realm of a kind of a reasonable amount, something that would be fair to the other shareholders of Tesla, who after all were basically going to be diluting themselves a lot as these benchmarks got met and a bunch of these options got cashed out if those benchmarks got met. So that part is really going to turn on how hard was it to meet these benchmarks? Were they really almost like automatics or did they pretty much require must to work really hard to meet them, in which case, you know, if he didn't get paid that much, maybe he wouldn't have worked that hard. That's the argument that Tesla is going to use. And so it turns out that the most likely applicable legal test here is going to pivot on those two questions in kind of an interrelated way. The more likely it is that the shareholders actually, they knew what they were voting on, they voted with their eyes wide open, the more deference the judge is going to give to the pay package. On the other hand, if the shareholders didn't know everything or felt sort of bullied or forced into this vote, then that pay package and its fairness is going to get more scrutiny in court. In defending the compensation plan, Tesla directors have testified that it was important to keep Musk focused on and engaged in running Tesla. 
But Musk agreed with the shareholder's lawyer that at the time of this pay deal, he was spending about 54% of his time at Tesla, 36% at SpaceX, 10% on OpenAI, Boring, and Neuralink. And now he testified that he's spending almost all his time reorganizing Twitter. So is he a part-time CEO then? This makes this case one of the most unprecedented executive compensation cases that we've ever seen, quite frankly. Most CEOs don't work part-time at their companies. They they are full-time employees, and they're employees who are paid well to basically put every bit of their effort and attention into the welfare of the company. Musk has always been a little bit mercurial in in his habits. And in fact, they kind of knew that at the time, right? This was not one of these things where, you know, some of these other sideline ventures came up after the fact other than Twitter. So there was a sense in which they sort of knew they were getting a guy who had divided attentions. And weirdly enough, the rationale that Twitter had for trying to make sure this pay package at least had the potential to be heavily remunerative was that they wanted to make sure that it was attractive enough to create a honeypot to steal his attention from some of these other factors. And so it's kind of interesting that, you know, the road that we've gone down under this pay package involves Mr. Musk kind of wandering off and deciding he was going to take over another company, Twitter, that's not even in the space. I think that argument could cut both ways. On the one hand, the plaintiffs who were complaining about it sort of said, you know, fat load of good that did you, you know, paying him this lucrative amount, he was just going to wander off anyway. And maybe the defendants could say, yeah, if we erred, we erred in not paying him enough to keep him on mission and on target at Tesla. That may end up being a little bit of a standoff of a tie. I think you could, you know, manufacture that argument to go in either direction. It is clear, it is clear that the way that this played out pretty much came close to the maximal payoff that he was going to get from this compensation package. It could have been north of $56 billion, just about $56 billion. It didn't end up quite being that because he didn't make all the benchmarks, but he certainly made most of them, got the lion's share of that payoff. So if you look at it in hindsight, it just looks like a grotesquely large amount that, that is paid. The real operative question, however, was at the time that the grant was made, given that he wasn't taking any salary, he was only going to do well if Tesla did well, did that make sense at the time? And did the shareholders kind of agree with it? As far as the question of whether Tesla's board acted independently, Musk testified that he had no role whatsoever in setting up this unprecedented pay package. However, in text with the board member who headed the compensation committee, Musk said he should end up owning 10% of the company in a performance plan built around a progression of targets that would each grant him 1% of Tesla's outstanding shares. Doesn't that contradict what he testified to? Yeah, there are definitely some inconsistent statements. There were some other statements of him in the record that basically sort of said, yeah, I'm kind of bargaining against myself on this. And so, you know, I think it's unlikely that at the end of the day, anyone's really going to believe that he was so hands off at Tesla that the board of directors felt completely comfortable just telling him no. There are some important cases out there that if that's true, If you've got a board that's willing to stand up to you, then your route to defending your compensation package is even easier than what Elon Musk is facing right now. Because if you really have a board that has bargaining power and is willing to say no, they sign off on it. And then the shareholders vote in a fully informed way to sign off on it. 
the case is basically done under Delaware law. And it's interesting that this case has even gotten to this point, and the Tesla folks and Musk haven't even seriously tried to argue that a truly independent board kicked the tires in a really strenuous way. I think the main thing that is important in trying to argue about you know, just how independent the board was is you know, really about what were the shareholders told before they voted to approve this transaction. The plaintiffs in this case have sort of said, yeah, the shareholders voted to approve it, but they didn't know the full story. The story that they got was that the board was really careful in working this out. And in fact, if the board was being led along on a leash by Elon Musk, that's an inaccurate disclosure of how things went down. And therefore, their vote wouldn't really be a by-the-book vote. It would be an uninformed vote. Vote. So I think that's the main reason why this has come up, not because you know an informed and empowered board is going to do much work in his defense, other than the fact that you know the plaintiffs have made an argument in trying to beat back this shareholder vote from having any effect that the shareholders didn't know the whole story. And you know there's kind of an interesting question there too, right? Maybe Tesla is telling the shareholders in their proxy disclosures, oh gosh, the board really used their own judgment in deciding to go forward on this and they studied up on it. But it's kind of an open secret and everyone knows that Elon is, you know, this incredibly powerful and influential person. And when it came right down to it, the board was going to be as weak need as anyone else. And so it may be the case that the plaintiffs are right, that there was this description in the proxy materials, but no one actually believed it. Everyone sort of figured, yeah, Elon probably runs the roost on this. And we're just going to have to presume that notwithstanding what the board is telling us or what these proxy disclosures are telling us, you know, he was probably calling the shots the whole time. And and, and there may be some of that argument that comes out later on uh, in the post-trial briefing. It certainly wouldn't come out, you know, during the live trial, but that could be sort of, you know, part of the spin that, that Tesla puts on it to the extent that there were inconsistencies that come out in testimony versus what was in those proxy solicitation materials. Tesla could say, yeah, but you know what? No one really believed it anyway. The shareholders kind of knew that they were getting a pretty dominated company and they were the sentry to make sure that, you know, whatever the compensation package was, was okay by them. So then why did the judge allow the shareholder's attorney to go into a series of questions to show that Musk acts with little oversight from Tesla's board? He asked about this report that Musk has some 50 Tesla employees working at Twitter and asked whether a board member had ever called him to say it's not a good idea to use Tesla's resources for one of his private companies. So resources of a public company used for a private company. I think this was really meant by the plaintiffs. It was meant to undercut, not necessarily whether the board's decision requires legal deference or not. That's not the defense that Tesla's putting up. But what they do need to be able to show is that that shareholder vote wasn't built on kind of a mountain of prevarications and fanciful yarns, right? That, that, that shareholder vote, the shareholders saw the package, they saw the projections, and they received a description of what went into the structuring of that package. Part of that description did say, hey, listen, this board wasn't just like, you know, doing everything that Elon wanted to do. They did their own study on this, and they think this is a good idea. And so I think that's the the nature of the inquiry here to try to undercut or impeach the credibility of that statement that was in the disclosure to shareholders. And the plaintiffs are trying to prove, you know what, they told you that, 
But the fact of the matter is no one wanted to say no to Elon. And here's a bunch of examples about people being too chicken to say no to Mr. Musk. And so I, I think that's the reason they're going to they're going to try to use that here. It is an important thing for the plaintiffs to do, because, you know, if, if this shareholder vote is found by Chancellor McCormick to be, you know, kind of a fully informed and non-coerced vote of the majority of disinterested shareholders, it makes the case much harder for the plaintiffs to win. It doesn't eliminate the possibility, but it shifts all the evidentiary burdens onto the plaintiff. And so that makes it a much harder case because, you know, burdens, particularly in cases that are complex, that have a lot of facts, burdens are tiebreakers. And if you're the one that carries the burden and the evidence is a tie, you lose. Chancellor McCormick is familiar with Elon Musk because she presided over the short-lived Twitter lawsuit. At one point early in the testimony, she expressed frustration with Musk digressing. I'm going to interrupt Mr. Musk because we can listen all day to this. It's very interesting, but I don't think it was responsive to the question, which I've now forgotten. Is she the right judge for this because she's not putting up with any of Musk's plays? It's a valid question to ask. The fact of the matter is, A, judges are people too, and B, you know, a lot of this type of adjudication involves kind of a sense of the read of the room and whether the people that you're adjudicating on have a good read of the room. And by the way, I was listening in and I had forgotten the question as well. So I think he really was, you know, doing some monologuing um, in ways that a lot of witnesses do, quite frankly. I don't know if you noticed, but as the testimony wore on, particularly after that, Mr. Musk's affect flattened. He, you know, a lot of his responses were sort of monosyllabic grunts that I guess I took to be yeses or nos. But he uh, ended up, you know, being much less loquacious and much more clipped in his responses towards the end. One possibility was that he realized that he, you know, he kind of didn't want to try the patience of Ch- Chancellor McCormick. Now, the other thing that it's worth that's worth noting is that. Chancellor McCormick didn't hear any testimony from Mr. Musk in the Twitter case. She heard a lot from his lawyers, and she saw a lot of his tweets, and she saw a lot of interviews, but he never had to appear to testify in court in front of her. And so I think, you know, it's important to realize, and, and lawyers and judges realize this as well, that you can become exasperated with, say, the behavior of a lawyer or a, a legal team in front of you without necessarily that exasperation, you know, getting kind of transplanted onto the client themselves. This is a case that's been baking all the way since, you know, 2019, actually 2018. And the, the factual record is long. It has not been on a rushed schedule in which tempers get short and people get impatient. This has been, a, you know, a trial that's been coming up for years. And so on some level, I kind of feel like, A, Chancellor McCormick is, in my view, sort of the consummate professional in, in these sorts of settings and uh, is able to separate these things uh, from one another. And B, the types of cases are so different from one another that I don't, you know, I don't really think that this kind of has as much of a time is of the essence aspect as the other one was. So I think it's a little easier to achieve some form of acoustic separation between these two cases than it might be if both of these were kind of fire drill cases that were happening at the same time. This is a small thing, but I wonder if things like this hurt Musk's credibility with the judge. There was a lot of questioning about his opinion of the SEC. He'd written a tweet in July of 2020 saying, SEC, three-letter acronym, middle word is Elon's. 
this was widely read as being vulgar and an insult to the SEC. But he claimed on the stand that it was misunderstood and it really meant save Elon's company. I mean, A, I don't think anyone's familiar with that particular acronym. And B, the answer just doesn't seem credible. Yeah, one's mind can cycle for the various other things that could stand in for those other two initials. And I won't give you a drum solo myself. But yeah, I think this is something that he loves to do. He loves to do the slightly juvenile, coy kind of word puzzle type of thing. And I think that judges can lose their patience with that. You know, it's interesting that probably the Twitter case in many respects, may have laid bare at least one realization that, you know, messing around with the Delaware courts, you know, you'd think, oh, this is just a state court system. It's nothing compared to the SEC. But the Delaware courts are a special breed. They are sort of the business court of the United States on some level. And I think on some level, the outcome of the Twitter case in which after putting up a big protestation, thinking he was going to bend gravity to walk away from that deal, he ended up closing on its original terms. And I think that might have been in large part because of the credibility of the court system. And so, yeah, would he like to walk that thing back? (laughs) Probably would, at least to the extent that it was going to be presented in front of Chancellor McCormick. I think at the time, he really didn't realize that the Delaware state court system is pretty professional and they're probably not to be trifled with on some level. Now, I will also say that this particular case, I was never much of a fan of Mr. Musk's position in that earlier case. I just thought it was It was a case of buyer's remorse, and he was drastically and and desperately looking for escape hatches to get out of, but none of them was a very good escape hatch. This is a stronger case for him. If I were posting odds on this, I think it's quite likely he's going to win this case in large part because, you know, there is this shareholder vote out there. The extent of failed disclosures, they're going to have to, you know, show a pretty strong case to undercut the validity of that shareholder vote. And then in addition, you know, a lot of corporate law deals with sticks, with liability sticks. If you do this, CEO, we're going to punish you by forcing you to pay damages and so forth. When it comes to compensation, it's effectively the other side of the sticks. It's the companies also sort of saying, okay, those sticks are doing some work, but we want to do a little bit more work with some carrot to fine tune those incentives of our CEOs and our board members. And courts over the years, I think probably appropriately have said, yeah, we're probably not getting it right for all companies when it comes to the sticks. So we're going to give them a little bit of deference when it comes to trying to figure out how they're going to situate their carrots on the other side of those sticks. And, you know, it may It may well be that Tesla overpaid. It may well be that its shareholders voted in a foolish way to permit this thing to go forward. But if the shareholders were fully informed, they knew that what they were getting into, they knew that they could be heavily diluted later on. It's a much more defensible case for Mr. Musk to sort of say, yeah, and I accept it on that basis. And, you know, on some level, for the same reason that I kind of had to go through with the Twitter purchase. Tesla should have to go through with this contract that they, after all, agreed. Now, the shareholders, or at least the plaintiffs, they're having buyer's remorse, but, you know, they voted to agree to pay me this. And so I think there is kind of an interesting aspect in this case. The law is not identical, of course, but the tables are a little bit turned. That now Mr. Musk is the person that's sort of saying, let's enforce this contract as written. And it's the Tesla shareholders that are saying, let us walk away from this contract. Thanks, Eric. That's Columbia Law School professor Eric Talley. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. A Republican EEOC commissioner is deploying a rarely used agency procedure to silently initiate discrimination investigations against at least three companies providing their employees with abortion travel benefits. That's according to five attorneys who've seen the charges. Joining me is J. Edward Moreno, an employment discrimination reporter at Bloomberg Law, who wrote the exclusive story. How rare are these charges coming from commissioners directly? These commissioners' charges, EEOC commissioners, which there are five of them, are able to file them independently. They're typically used very rarely. In the past two fiscal years, they've only been used three times. We still don't have the data for this past fiscal year. But they're typically used to push settled law or add claims to existing investigations where, for example, if somebody filed a charge with the EEOC because they believe they were discriminated on the basis of race the, and the EEOC finds that the employer was also discriminating on other grounds, they can file a commissioner's charge to add a claim to that investigation that the uh, victim didn't necessarily make. And so tell us about these charges you learned about that were brought by Republican Commissioner Andrea Lucas. EEOC Commissioner uh, Andrea Lucas, who was appointed by President Trump in 2020, has filed these commissioner's charges against at least three companies um, alleging that they're discriminating against pregnant employees and disabled employees because they're offering, they're allegedly offering um, abortion travel benefits, but not benefits for other medical procedures. What I don't quite understand is what other procedures are they claiming need travel benefits? Women are getting travel benefits to travel out of state because in state they can't get an abortion. So what is Lucas claiming here, that there are disabled workers and pregnant workers who need to go out of state for procedures and they can't? Yeah, so it's unclear from the charges. They're very broad. They just make those two assertions, that the company is discriminating against pregnant workers and that it's discriminating against disabled workers. So the facts of these cases are not yet established. The investigations are still ongoing, but the charges make the assumption that, for example, 
somebody with maybe a complicated pregnancy at that company or at any of these companies was maybe not able to travel to see a specialist or a person with a disability was not able to travel to seek the care that they needed. Meanwhile, these companies were offering travel for abortions. As you mentioned, you know, it is a little unusual because abortion is unique in that it, depending on where you are, you may not have access to that anymore. Where with pregnancies or other conditions, those services are generally offered locally or, you know, if not in the general vicinity of where you're working. It's also unusual in that from the attorneys that I talked to for this, typically abortion travel is covered under a more broad healthcare travel policy in an employer's healthcare plan. So, you know, they may have advertised it as a pledge to cover abortion travel, but as far as, you know, their healthcare plan is concerned, it's just a general healthcare travel policy that happens to include abortion. A commissioner can just, you know, launch an investigation and then the investigators have to investigate it. Is there any other step in between? No. So there's a couple avenues for commissioner charges to go through. In this case, um, you know, Andrea Lucas has the the power and authority to, based on information she, you know, maybe publicly available information or information she acquired otherwise, uh, file these charges directly. And then the district office where that employer, you know, is headquartered uh, will have to investigate that claim. And then if they find that there was discrimination, then they have to conciliate or, you know, try to reach a settlement. And if that doesn't work out, then the EEOC can sue. But this avenue that Andrew Lucas is choosing is quite unusual. What is more common and more routine is for, say, an alleged victim of discrimination at a company to come forward to the EEOC and say, for example, that they feel that they were discriminated against based on their race. And let's say throughout the investigation, the EEOC finds that the employer was discriminating against other employees and candidates based on gender. Well, the victim didn't make that specific claim, so the EEOC can use a commissioner's charge to add that claim to an existing investigation. That's what is more common for, for these types of charges. Is there any case law to support these charges? Any precedent? Or are they completely novel? It's pretty novel. You know, it's only been since June that, you know, the constitutional right to an abortion has been overturned. So this has not been tested in federal courts yet. But the laws at play here are Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Americans with Disability Act and the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And, you know, I talked to a lot of lawyers for the story in trying to find these charges. And generally what they argue is that the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, in fact, protects an employer's ability to provide abortion benefits rather than preclude them from doing so. And also what's interesting about these charges is that since they come from a commissioner, they don't necessarily have a victim. There wasn't, you know, somebody who came forward and said that they felt that they were discriminated against based on off of these benefits. So we still haven't seen that come forward, and at least that we are aware of um, in, in the courts or in the public eye. What happens, suppose the agency investigates and it believes that discrimination occurred? What happens then? The EEOC would then have to go through a conciliation period where it tries to negotiate a settlement with the employer. Um, a lot of times that doesn't end up happening. Um, they are not able to reach a settlement. And then the the district office, which you know also is the one uh, trying to reach the settlement, will let the general counsel's office know. And 
they will make a decision. In this case, since it's, you know, uh, the issues here are novel and, like I said, haven't been tested in court before, uh, it will likely result in a commission vote. So the five commissioners, now four commissioners, because um, one just re- just resigned, would have to vote on whether or not they would like to pursue litigation here. You write that these arguments that Lucas makes mirror those of the agency's former general counsel. Right. So um, the agency's former general counsel, Sharon Gustafson, she was um, appointed by President Trump and served as general counsel throughout the Trump administration. In October, began sending letters to employers, basically warning that her interpretation of the law as a former EEOC general counsel was that, you know, the same as what Andrea Lucas is alleging in these charges is that that abortion travel benefits are potentially discriminatory. Um, that ruffled a bit of feathers among the employer community and Littler um, sent a letter to the EEOC requesting some sort of ethics investigation or some sort of response from them saying that that, you know, that, that was not the agency's position. And that's pretty much what they did. They responded to the letter saying that Gustafson's views don't reflect theirs. One thing that I find interesting about Gustafson's letter is it was sent out broadly. She's, um, you know, a solo practice attorney. And it was sent out broadly to employers. Um, and it's unclear if the letter's goal, one, if it was, if its goal was to attract clients or, and two, the letter also specifically notes that, you know, employers could be subject to commissioner's charges or targeted investigations, which, as I mentioned earlier, have historically been pretty rare especially in the way that she's suggesting that they may be used. Does Lucas have a connection to Gustafsson? Uh, they, they cross paths at the agency. Um, Lucas, uh, like I said, uh, joined the agency in the latter half of 2020, with, towards the end of the Trump administration, and Gustafsson left the agency in early 2021 at the start of um, the Biden administration. And tell us about Lucas and her focus. Yeah, so Lucas has been known to um, have a priority in religious liberty in the workplace. She often speaks at events and other sorts of panels where she talks about religious discrimination in the workplace. She also has quite a bit of focus on uh, disability issues. In fact, she deviates from her Republican colleagues often when it comes to those litigation votes, particularly when it comes to you know religious discrimination or disability discrimination issues. What's the makeup of the commission as far as Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, so currently um, there is a Democratic chair who sets the agenda and puts things forward for a vote. And there are three Republican commissioners and one other Democrat. So it's a Republican majority but with a Democratic chair. Um, as of this week, uh, Janet Dillon, who is one of the Republican commissioners who chaired the commission during the Trump administration, uh, resigned. So by next week, the commission's makeup will be a, an even two-two partisan split. So much of the same gridlock that the agency that the commission has been experiencing for the past year or so uh, will likely remain for you know until uh, Biden is able to confirm a Democrat into the open seat. Has he been having problems? Has he nominated a Democrat? Yeah, in um, I believe um, in the spring he nominated a civil rights attorney, Kalpana Kodogal. And she's had a bit of trouble getting through the Senate. Um, you know, there was a committee markup for her confirmation where there was a deadlock, which means that the Senate needs to have another procedural vote before there's a full floor vote on her nomination. 
currently and now after the midterms, it seems that the Senate's going to have, you know, Democratic control, but still a pretty, pretty razor thin majority. So we'll see how that plays out. I know that by the end of the year, if she is not confirmed, she will have to be renominated and start the whole process off again. Is there a new general counsel since Gustafsson left? Her position has been open uh, since she left in early 2021. There is a nominee for her position who, in fact, has a committee vote coming up this week. Considering she wouldn't, you know, she has a little bit less power than a commissioner does. Uh, you know, she doesn't vote on policy issues necessarily. She has proven to be a little less controversial than than Kodogal has. But, you know, still with the Senate, it's, it's very hard to predict whether so, uh, her nomination will go smoothly. Um, and she has a, a committee markup coming up this week. The agency said that Gustafson's views after she sent out that letter didn't reflect the views of the EEOC. So then why is this commissioner able to start an investigation with those same views? You know, commissioners have the authority and power to do that completely independently. And in fact, she filed these charges and her colleagues wouldn't even necessarily be informed about them. Like she could do this completely independently without having any sort of vote or discussion with her colleagues. Like I said, it's it's very rare that something like that happens. I think maybe the, the chair might be aware of it. But the, again, this is within her authority. I don't know if there's much that the chair or, the, or anyone else at the agency can do about that. This is an exclusive. Can you tell us how you found out about this? Right. So after we covered Sharon Gustafson's letter and how that ruffled some feathers in the employer community and, you know, Ever since then, I've just been really working the phones and talking to a lot of employment attorneys. And I eventually heard that some attorneys that I spoke to have clients who have received those charges. And I was able to confirm that with about five attorneys that at least three charges exist. And those five attorneys have seen those charges and read the allegations to me. Well, congratulations on your story. Thanks, Edward. That's J. Edward Moreno of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.